You are listening to episode number 43 of the Secondary Science Simplified podcast. Are you looking at your roster this year and thinking, I have way too many students. How on earth am I to manage large classes like these and actually do labs? If this is the situation you are in this year, you are not alone, teacher friend. I was actually reading a report the other day from 2018 that showed that the average class size of departmentalized classes like science, like English, like math, by state are ranging anywhere from 18 to 29 students in a class. But for the majority of states, it's more around class averages of 27 to 29 students being typical. Now, if you are listening to this, you are most likely a science teacher and thus you know how averages work. We take the sum of the class sizes and we divide by the number of classes we're looking at. So for 27 to 29 students to represent an average class size, and again, this is based on data that's four years old, so who knows what it even is now. But that means while there are classes smaller than 27 to 29 in public schools around the United States, there are also classes larger than that. Some of you are teaching high school science classes with 30 plus students in them. And you're getting paid the same amount as the teacher down the hall with only 15 students in their elective class. How are you expected to manage large classes like this? Unfortunately, I've been there, but that also means that I have some advice and some encouragement for you in how to manage large classes like this. I actually have six tips to share with you today. So without further ado, let's dive in. This is Secondary Science Simplified, a podcast for secondary science teachers who want to engage their students and simplify their lives. I'm Rebecca Joyner from It's Not Rocket Science. As a high school science teacher turned curriculum writer, I'm passionate about helping other science teachers love their jobs, serve their students, and do it all in only 40 hours a week. Are you ready to rock the time you spend in your classroom and actually have a life outside of it? You're in the right place, teacher friend. Let's get to today's episode. First, let me say happy October. I know I said that at the start of last week's episode, but I am just so tickled that fall is here. I live in the low country of South Carolina, so fall for us means the temperature is dropping from 90 degrees to closer to 80 degrees, and sometimes we get in the upper 70s, and that just feels like sweater weather. But I'm just thrilled that it's fall, even if it's not a very crisp fall down here. So I just wanted to continue celebrating that with you and remind you that if you haven't already, you need to grab my free Halloween and October and fall themed resources that I made for you last year. So I've made one for biology, anatomy, chemistry, and physics, so they're content specific, but you can grab them all in one large PDF if you head to itsnotrocketscienceclassroom.com slash Halloween. And you just input your name and your email address and you'll get those right away in your inbox to download. And they're just a really fun way to celebrate the season in your secondary science classes in a way that's relevant and standards aligned. Okay, but now for today's episode, I can't just keep talking about fall because I love it. We need to talk about managing large class sizes. I have seen so many posts in teacher Facebook groups this year asking for advice for how to do labs with 30 or 40 students. I've also personally received several DMs from y'all who have more students than you have space for in your classroom. And that's what prompted this episode. Because let's be real, as science teachers, these kinds of numbers are honestly disturbing. 
30 first graders is one thing. They're all at least around four feet tall or maybe under. Honestly, I don't know. I've never taught first grade. I have no idea the average height of a six-year-old. But I am very confident that 30 17-year-olds would take up a lot more space than 37-year-olds. And so not only as high school science teachers are you dealing with students that are physically taking up a lot of space in your classroom, you're also expected to get those students out of their seats and do laps with these giant pubescent beings. Like you're actually expected to use fire and chemicals and sharp dissection tools all while their giant seemingly uncoordinated bodies are raging with hormones using these things in your classroom. How on earth are you to manage large classes like this without one, anyone getting hurt, and two, without you losing your mind? If this is how you feel this school year, then this episode is for you. Now, before we dive in any further, full disclosure, because you know I'm all about honesty around here. My largest class that I've ever taught was 30 students at one time. Okay, so that's the most I've ever taught. And I know some of you are dealing with 10 more than that. And at the time that I taught those 30 students, I did have a large classroom that had desks in the front where there was lecture space and then a lab space in the back of the classroom. However, I have also taught several sections for several years of 25 students in a tiny classroom that was once an old computer lab that got converted to my science room. And I say that with almost like air quotations because it was called a science room because they ripped up the carpet. And so I had tile as opposed to the other rooms on the hall that had carpet. But I wouldn't necessarily call it a science room because I had no running water, no gas, no hood, no labs equipment or space to do labs whatsoever. The only things in that tiny room were my teacher desk and my students' desks and a fold-up table that I put a tablecloth over and converted to be like my little demo table at the front of the room. Okay, so that's it. So all of that to say, this episode is going to be helpful whether you have 30 students or whether the number of students you have and the square feet of space you're expected to teach in is very, very large. So this is an opportunity to practice population density calculations. If you teach biology, you're probably doing those with your students. But we're talking about how dense the population is, how many people for the space that you have. So it's not just about the number here. If either of these are your situations, whether you have a lot of students or just a high population density, then these tips will help you out. Okay, so first and foremost, it seems simple, but you have to do it. I need you to take your desks, or your lab tables, and I want you to put them into what I call pods. Now, if you hear pods and you're immediately thinking of the show Love is Blind, then we probably have similar tastes in trashy, binge-worthy television shows, but I don't want to get into that. This is not about Netflix reality series, although I could probably talk about that if y'all wanted me to. But by pods, I really just mean clumps. So if you have individual student desks, I want you to group them in clumps or pods of four desks. And if you have lab tables for desks that, you know, your students sit side by side in in pairs, then I want you to group those into twos. And I know it may sound simple, but you'll be amazed at the space you can reclaim in your classroom just by squishing a few seats together. You don't even have to remove any desks or tables, just moving them together. It'll give you wider space around those pods in order to move around the classroom, which is so essential and important. I was forced to do these pods several times when I literally did not have enough seats for all of the students in my classroom. I was regularly found scavenging chairs from the storage trailer that was stored at the back of our school's property 
just so I can ensure that no students had to stand in my classroom. And while I was able to eventually make sure that every bum had a place to rest, if you will, I was not able to nail down a table or a desk for every student. And so by taking my lab tables and grouping them into pods, I was actually able to squeeze six students to every two lab tables. So it was cozy because those lab tables are meant for for two each. And so two together is only meant for four students, but I could get six around them if I put them in these pods. And I would only seat students on three sides of the pod rather than all four. And so a practical note for you to take this tip home, to avoid having any backs to you when you make these pods, angle your pods of desks or your pods of table so that the students' sides face you. And so, you know, you have to sacrifice in a way, this means that no students are actually face-to-face with you, but it at least ensures that no one's back is directly to you if you kind of angle them so their sides are to you. And now, I know hearing this may feel overwhelming. You're like, I am just, if I do this, I am hand-delivering an open invitation for off-topic conversations to my students. But that's where my second and third tips are gonna come in, okay? So tip number one is arrange those seats and pods. Tip number two is be strategic with seating charts. Now listen, I know that seating charts may be like an old school thing, but I want you to hear me out. To manage large classes, you need seating charts. You have to be strategic with who you are sitting next to who in order to negate as many distractions for your students as possible because it's already going to be distracting with them sitting in these pods. So when I had 25 students in a classroom that was much better designed to comfortably hold 16, we were truly packed in there like a can of sardines. I had to beg my fourth period class. They're the ones who came to me after lunch. I had to beg them on hot days to not eat their lunch outside before coming into my class because the smell of 25 sweating bodies in a room designed for two-thirds that amount was too much to handle. But the only way we made it through was with seating charts. And using seating charts was the only way that I could like semi-manipulate those sweaty bodies to keep the chattiest students as far away as humanly possible from each other. So a practical note for you. I personally like to switch seats after every unit, but with a large class and a tiny classroom, you only have so many options. And sometimes it can feel like overwhelming to do a seating chart because you're like, how am I going to keep coming up with different derivations of this seating chart to move people around? So I want you to take the pressure off. Only switch seats when you feel like you need to. Heck, if the arrangement you have is working, keep those students there all year. There are no rules here. You are in charge. So change seats as many or as few times as your sanity requires, okay? Now, if you're still intimidated about students sitting in these pods, it isn't all bad, I promise. One of the best parts about having students sit in these pods is how it promotes and enables group work. And that's my third tip for you. Small group work is essential. Use what you've got to work with and make small group work a daily part of your classroom rhythm and routine. I could go on and on about why I love using small groups, both for my students, but also just for myself. But I've already done that elsewhere. I have a whole blog post about the benefits of using small groups and practical tips for doing it. And I will link that in the show notes so you can read those. But it is so, so helpful to do these, especially with these pod style seating arrangements. So a practical note for you to apply in your classroom. 
Build small group work into your lesson plans from day one. I know this episode is airing in October, so you may be a few weeks or a few months into your school year, but whenever you listen to this, just go ahead and start now because your students will get used to working together and even your more hesitant students will just stop fighting it and stop complaining when they learn to expect it and they know that this is a regular rhythm of your classroom. Okay, so I've given you three tips so far and you might be thinking, Rebecca, we are like halfway through this podcast and you have not even talked about labs. How on earth are we supposed to do labs with so many bodies and so little space? Okay, these last three tips are for you and they are all about labs. Okay, so here is the first one. Tip number four, y'all, you have to use stations. If you are trying to figure out how to manage large classes and getting your students out of their seats at all, then you need to take advantage of using stations. And there are so many ways that you can do stations, but my best advice is to take every lab that you have and break it into chunks where students will rotate in groups from one station to another to complete the lab, okay? So they'll start at station number one where they may like read the lab and they'll answer the pre-lab questions. And then they'll move to station number two where they may be measuring something and station number three where they may be heating something and station number four where they may be inputting their data into a class chart and station number five where they're gonna graph that data and six where they analyze or however you wanna break it up, breaking it up that way. And then, Put your students into groups, set timers, and tell them that when they need to rotate to each station and in what order they need to rotate. And this will keep the moving masses orderly so that even if you have 30 or 40 students out of their seats, they're all moving in a systematic way that makes it much less overwhelming. Another thing I'll say too, because I know this doesn't work for every lab. I know some labs you can't like move in a sequence in that way. There's multiple things they need to be doing at the same time. And so it's not going to work for them to rotate in that fashion. And so if that's the case, my best advice for you is go ahead and for every lab you're going to do, plan in an extra day or two because of your large class. This will take so much pressure off of you and off of your students. And honestly, my preferred method of doing labs with large classes is to split my class in half. Like when I had 30 students on the first day of lab, 15 of them got to do the lab and the other 15 were at their desks working independently on some sort of reinforcing practice. And then day two of the lab, we switched and the other 15 students got to do the lab. And then the first 15 students that had already done the lab, they were doing that independent group work. And I know this may seem oversimplified, but it really does make such a big difference. Give yourself that extra time built in so that you have breathing room. And again, if you're overwhelmed by 30 bodies out of their seats, then double the time you have for set for the lab and only do half of the students at once doing the lab. It'll be so much easier to manage. And that's my favorite way to do stations and to chunk up labs. And I have a lot more I can say about stations, but that's like a whole episode in and of itself. So I'll make sure to link in the show notes. I have a blog post that's everything you need to know about using stations. And within that blog post, I link like five other blog posts I've written about stations. Because again, I have a lot to say about stations. But that's my quick tip for you is use them and build an extra class time. And again, a practical note for you, because I'm trying to make each of these tips really, really practical. If I have said this once, I've said it a thousand times. When it comes to labs, less is more. Please don't do labs just for the sake 
of doing labs, especially if you're already managing the load of mega large classes, that every lab you're doing is so much more prep. It's taking up more class time because you're going to have to block off more class time and it's going to take more of your time to grade because there's so many more bodies in there. So be extremely strategic about the labs that you are going to block out the time and energy to do. And if your admin complains you aren't doing enough labs, tell them to give you smaller class sizes. And if your students and their parents are complaining that you're not doing enough labs, tell them you can't do more because the class sizes you have are outrageous and let them go to your admin about it. Let them fight for you on this. And I know this may seem harsh and you could never imagine going to your admin and saying something like that, but honestly, it needs to be said. I bet if you looked up some state OSHA rules, or if you have a teacher union in your state, see if they have any rules or regulations about class sizes, because honestly, y'all, it could be a serious safety hazard to be doing labs with some of the class sizes that some of you are expected to work with. And so you may not be able to find any legal support there, and maybe you may not be able to cry enough to get your admin to, you know, show you class size mercy. But I want you then to get serious about this next tip that I have for you. So if there's no changing your class size next year and your admin's not going to do anything to help you, then getting serious about your procedures is critical. And that's my fifth tip for you. Get serious about procedures. I am extremely passionate about teaching procedures in my classroom. I believe that clearly taught and consistently reinforced procedures are the backbone of solid classroom management. Personally, I teach my students a billion because I care about a billion things, but if you want to narrow it down, I think there are five procedures that are especially important and even more so if you can teach them at the beginning of the year. And I'll link my blog post in the show notes about those procedures and also the podcast episode about them. But y'all, procedures help so much with classroom management and decreasing the amount of time and energy you spend having to be reactive to everything that's happening in your classroom. And I want you to conserve your energy by being proactive in teaching and implementing these procedures. And this is so especially important when figuring out how to manage your large classes because you need to minimize time that's wasted, one, during transitions in your class, and two, when getting class started. And procedures are going to enable you to do that. And again, I'll link the blog post and the episode in the show notes where you can listen to me talk about the five that I think are the most important. But on a practical note, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a list of the things that make you the most frustrated in your classroom. So list out every frustration point you have. And then next to each of those frustration points, write a procedure that if you taught your students this rhythm or this routine or this procedure, it could prevent that frustration point from happening. So for example, if you get frustrated when people raise their hands and ask to go to the restroom, then you need a procedure that you can train your students in for how they can go to the restroom without interrupting you and, you know, slowing the flow of your classroom. Okay, so that's my challenge for you to do. And then once you've come up with that list, commit to teaching your students these procedures. Okay, so procedures are so important. I could go on and on about this all day. And while procedures are the foundation of my classroom management philosophy and strategy, I've also found that a little whole class reward-based system is incredibly motivating for most students. And so that's where my sixth and final tip comes in for you. And this is so helpful when you're doing labs too to utilize this tip. And that's to use board points for whole class motivation. Okay, so at my first teaching job, A veteran teacher I worked with introduced me to the idea of board points, and 
I have found it to be so simple, yet so effective in terms of whole classroom management. And I have a whole blog post about this, again, that I'll link in the show notes. I know I've said that so many times, but I've talked about a lot of these things a lot because I'm so passionate about them. But board points are so simple and so effective. Essentially, you just have each class period is written on the board, first period, second period, third period, et cetera. And at the start of each unit, each class period gets to start with five board points. And that number goes up and down based on how they behave as a whole class. So if they are all acting crazy, you take a board point, drops them to four points. You know, if they are being rowdy and you can't get them to settle down, you drop it to three points. If you are absent for a day and you have a sub and the sub leaves an amazing report about your class, you give them another board point and they go back up to four or they go to six or whatever. And then on test day, whatever amount of board points the class has becomes the worth of the bonus question on your test. So if on test day, my class has five board points, then they get a bonus question that's worth up to five points. If they have two board points, they get a bonus question that's worth up to two points. And if you aren't allowed to offer extra credit, this can just be points that they can earn back like up to 100 on their test. Like you can cap it at 100. They can't get like 105%. But I found this so motivating for students. And if they ever have zero board points on the day of the test, then the bonus question becomes a required question on the test. And now the test is out of 105 points rather than 100. So it's worth even more. And that's very rarely happened, but that's another way to motivate them as well. And then at the start of the next unit, you restart set that number to five. Now, a practical note, maybe you're listening to this idea and you're like, I can't do that. That's gonna go against our school policy or whatever it is. Or you already think my students won't be incentivized by bonus points on a test. Well, if that's the case, my first practical note and tip is to try it anyway and see if they are. I truly was so shocked that so many students were motivated by this idea of board points. It seems like way too simple to be effective, but it has always been effective year after year with such a varying group of students that I've taught. But anyway, so try it, even if you think automatically it won't work. But if you find that that reward of the bonus points on the test is it motivating for them? Then ask your students what is, okay? Think about some things that you're willing to execute that would make them happy. So keep it simple and then offer those to your students and see if that would motivate them. I don't wouldn't give them 50 ideas. Just think of something you're willing to do and offer it. So for example, would your students be motivated by a Starbucks day? where, you know, for that month or for that quarter, you have one class period where you bring in your coffee pot, you're brewing coffees all day, you bring in a couple fun creamers too, you play some like nice calming music and they get to spend the class period catching up on work, either for you or for another teacher. Okay, maybe you're like, I can't sacrifice a whole day for Starbucks day. Maybe they're just motivated by donuts if you have them first period. Or maybe they're motivated by you baking cookies if you have them last period, you know, and you can find, there are so many good recipes out there that are gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free. You don't have to worry about that. Or, you know, maybe you hate baking or you're not allowed to bring in food for your students. So eliminate those options. And maybe what will motivate them is you dropping one of their bell ringer grades or dropping their lowest quiz grade at the end of the quarter if they have five board points or whatever it may be. But think of things you're willing to offer And then ask them if that would be motivating for them and choose a reward that motivates them if bonus points on their test doesn't. Okay, 
So those are the tips I have for you. If you're managing large class sizes, I want you to arrange your desks or lab tables into pods. I want you to be strategic with seating charts. I want to encourage you to use small group, make it an essential part of your daily lesson plans. Use stations too. They will make your labs so much easier if you can chunk up your labs. Get serious about procedures and then also consider trying board points as a whole class motivation in terms of keeping them on track. Okay, I really hope you find these six tips helpful as you're managing your large classes this school year. And if you're listening and you're like, I have a section or two that are really small, like I only have a handful of students in these sections, then stay tuned because next week I'm going to be sharing my best tips for engaging students when you only have a few in your class. So next week is for you. Thank you again for tuning in to today's episode. As always, you can find any links that I mentioned in the show notes at itsnotrocketscienceclassroom.com slash episode 43. And don't forget to grab your free Halloween-themed high school science activities to use all month long in your science classes. You can find them at itsnotrocketscienceclassroom.com slash Halloween. All right, teacher friends, that wraps up today's episode. If you're looking for an easy way to start simplifying your life as a secondary science teacher, head to itsnotrocketscienceclassroom.com slash challenge to grab your classroom reset challenge. And guess what? It's totally free. Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll see you here next week. Until then, I'll be rooting for you, teacher friend.